Brought to you by Universal Pictures Oppenheimer, now the winner of five Golden Globe Awards, including Best Picture, Drama, Best Director, Christopher Nolan, Best Actor, Killian Murphy, Best Supporting Actor, Robert Downey Jr., and Best Original Score, Ludwig Goransson. The New York Times calls Oppenheimer staggering, and the Washington Post declares it a masterpiece, brilliantly acted and thoroughly engrossing. Oppenheimer, for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year. Go to www.experienceoppenheimer.com for more. For the Los Angeles Times in the Envelope, I'm Mark Olson. I'm Yvonne Villarreal. I'm Sean Finney. And this is our first episode of the new year. Welcome back to all of our viewers and listeners. It's good to see the both of you again. So now things are really getting going. The Palm Springs Film Festival had their big awards gala, which is kind of an important whistle stop early in the, in the year. Golden Globes get a Golden Globe and do their thing. <laughs> and, uh, and now, you know, we're sort of like charging ahead to those Oscar nominations. But Yvonne, you have a really terrific interview for us this week. Who did you talk to? I'm talking to somebody that's been getting a lot of, you know, praise and awards buzz. That's Davine Joy Randolph, who stars in the Alexander Payne film, The Holdovers. And this is a film set like in the early 1970s at a New England boarding school. And it, you know, it follows this sort of not very well liked history teacher played by Paul Giamatti. And he's sort of tasked with chaperoning a group of students who have nowhere to go over Christmas break. And Divine plays Mary Lamb, who's, you know, the uh, manager of the school kitchen and the head cook. And, you know, when we meet her, she's in the grieving process of losing her son, um, who was stationed in Vietnam. And she really gives a compelling performance that a lot of people are taking notice of right now. I mean, she's received so many awards already. So New York, many. LA, National Society Film Critics, the Golden Globe. Golden Globe. Which, which is huge, you yeah. know, and I really think that this sets her on track towards really kind of being a, a powerhouse contender in uh, this season. 100%. But also it really builds on what she's been doing over the past few years. I mean, you know, Justice for High Fidelity. Yeah. yeah. Like she's been like building to this over the, and getting a lot of attention over the, over the last few years. Well-deserved attention. And you spoke with somebody that I think we all sort of uh, admire the catalog. Fought of over who was going to do this interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I won. I won. <laughs> yeah. I spoke with Miss Ava DuVernay about her film Origin, which I mean, for me, really shifted and moved in so many different ways. I think we said we ugly cried. We bonded yeah, on the fact did. that we ugly cried about we that. But it followed okay. Isabel Wilkerson's life and really just her life and her own personal loss in her journey, played by the amazing Anjanou Ellis Taylor, while she was writing the book, Cast. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was so interesting to see the book as we know it. It was such built on such theory and, and studies, but then the life behind it at the same time, I think it really bonded and bridged her life with the book as well. And so really excited to speak with Ava about that and spoke to her at the Array campus. That's, it's, I love those, the, you know, people say creative campus, and I really feel like that's a place that it's really true like you feel like things come out of there it's it's such a i love that set of buildings that, that she has there it's a really great place yeah and and i think it's so amazing because it's like it's very intentional you know they have like their editing bay there they have all of their um, array film works that are happening there the community gets to come there and watch films as well the i interviewed theater. her yeah in the theater I interviewed her in that theater so it just it felt really like oh i get it 
being in that space was really immersive. Not to downplay any of that, but did you ask, or did you tell Ava that I want the rom-com with John and Ajanu? <laughs> you know, I didn't tell her yet, but I, I think this is another opportunity for part B of oh, the interview, okay. for us okay. to have it. Just, that's a meeting. That's okay. a Zoom meeting okay. we need to have specifically around I'm there. available whenever you wanna do it, yeah. So after the break, let's get to it. And Sean will hear your interview with Ava DuVernay. Sean Finney from The Envelope. I am here with a filmmaker whose work I'm really excited about this season and beyond this season that I think will require further discussion. Writer, director, and human connector through art, film, and culture. Director of the film Origin, Miss Ava DuVernay. I have too many things to talk to you about. Okay. But first, will you tell us where we are? You're at Array, and that is our liberated territory, uh, as the great filmmaker Haile Garima calls it. He said, you always have to find a place that's just for you, a place where you feel comfortable. And for some people, it's a physical space. And for some people, it's you know, in their home or just somewhere where you can be courageous in your own mind. And for me, I always patterned it after Oprah and Harpo Studios or even JJ and Bad Robot or uh, Spielberg with Amblin or Mr. Garima with Sankofa, his bookstore, like a physical space. So that's what I dreamed of. So this is a four-building campus in the historic Filipino town area of Los Angeles uh, near Echo Park, and you're sitting in our screening room. We have public programming for the community, the community at large. Anyone who wants to come see a film in this DCP-compliant 50-seat theater, um, we show all kinds of things. Uh, you know, um, Iranian cinema to Filipino cinema to the latest things that are being discussed in the award season, uh, comedies, dramas, uh, anime. Uh, so we have a whole department that programs films for folks for free. I love it. When I watched the film, mm. and I told you this in private, and I'm going to tell mm. you this in public, I tried uh, my best to string along a sentence mm. to explain the experience that I felt. I felt. Mm a shift inside of myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the LA Timers watching, I left uh, Ava a voice note that I don't know made a lot of sense, but you, you caught the intention. I was beautiful. And I think I understand a bit more of what I wanted to say, um, though I'm still processing. Mm -hmm. And it's thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for centering black lives mm -hmm. in your projects the way that you do, mm -hmm. that show the full range and breadth of us, our curiosity, mm -hmm. our humanity, our love, our loss, our grief, our range of emotions and complexities, mm -hmm. but also for showing us beyond our complexion. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Uh, your voice note was so beautiful, and it was really speaking to humanity and dignity, and that's what I think the film is offering. That's what I want to offer. You know, it's really being able to watch this this woman writer, a black woman writer, try to uncover secrets that history holds that goes beyond, you know, blackness or, you know, being Jewish, being Indian, and starts to say underneath all of the skin and the, and the labels, there's something else that, that animates our reasons for embracing difference. And embracing difference, our reason should be to celebrate. Unfortunately, the way we embrace difference as a society is to divide separate. and to separate. And so uh, the core of Cast, uh, which is the book upon which the film is, is inspired, uh, beautiful book by Pulitzer Prize winner Isabel Wilkerson, this is what we're looking at. It's like the differences are there, 
and it's a part of life. But why, why are we embracing it from a place of, of fear as opposed to a place of beauty? Somebody asked you a question. They said, what do you want people to feel mm. after watching this film? And mm. you said, um, I want them to just ask the question, who am I now? Mm -hmm. And so my question to you is, when I watch what I experienced, um, I can't help but the emotion that was there was also in the emotion in the research, also in the emotion mm -hmm. in the preparation. So like, who are you now mm -hmm. after creating that world and diving in? Who are you now? Well, for me, that's a big question. That's a good one. Look at you turning my question around on me. <laughs> in a, in a, you know, we are different people too in different spaces. You know, uh, Langston Hughes said we wear the mask. And so, you know, every single person presents differently to their family than they do to work, than they do to the world in general when they walk out of the house. You present differently when you're having a good day than when you're having a bad day. And so for me, professionally, it's really changed me in that it's strengthened my resolve and helped my confidence in terms of my capacity, how much I can do, how I can do it, and that I don't have to feel... Um, uh, constrained or I don't feel like I have to fit inside of a box when I felt that for a long time. Um, personally, it has been the happiest time of my life making this movie. Uh, the making of it, the writing of it, the, the production, the post. The presentation to the world has been hard. And so that, now it's taking a, a different turn. It's like waves, but making it, just making it. Oh my gosh, I felt so alive, so joyous. And I have to get back to that. You know what I mean? I have to get back to and continuously remind myself um, what I made it for, what it felt to make it, and not let myself get um, distracted by all of the trappings of the movie. You know, we're here on the envelope, and it is talking about the award season. And for me, I've really had to orient myself to what that means to me in the context of this film, which for me is so much greater than awards. And so, and, and yet I know that awards helps people want to see it. So you get caught in a, you know what I mean? You get caught in this kind of conundrum, this kind of, you know, the tail wagging the dog a little bit. And so that, that's, that's, that's my, my views about it have definitely changed in Selma and views about my place in the industry, views about the, my, um, my abilities as a filmmaker, views about myself just as a person in the world. So the film has been a great gift to me. And I was speaking with Ed Zwick. He, he did one of my Q&As. Filmmaker that I've, that I've you know, followed and really loved his work over the years. And, and he was talking about you know, the, 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 the arbiter of success is time. He says, it's really time. He says, I made a lot of films. Some people, some, some remember and some they don't. And it's time that will tell. It, will your film be remembered? When someone watches it years from now, you know, how does it hit them? Will it help someone in the moment in 10 years as they see it passing on free TV? You know, the film itself lives on outside of the context of this moment. And so maybe one year, years from now, someone will dig up this podcast and, um, and hear how we felt about it today. But you know, it's a worthy discussion. It's impactful now, and it, yeah. it will be impactful, as I yeah. said, beyond seasons. And and, and I had mentioned already that I, I do feel like it's an invitation for further discussion. Yeah. And I think sometimes at a distance, when you are seeing a, a phenomenal talent like Anjanou Ellis, mm -hmm. a black woman at the center of a film, 
when you are seeing phenomenal talent behind the camera directing mm -hmm. and writing and in partnership with a phenomenal producer and mm -hmm. all. Um, sometimes I think that it can be looked at like, oh, that's a, that's a, a film, a black film. Mm -hmm. And it's actually not in my opinion it is a film about the globalization of the human story mm -hmm. and the complexities and the nuances of all of that how do you describe kind of like the audience that you were imagining or you were hoping that would connect with this film well we made it for a global audience yeah. I and mean, that's why we shot in three countries in 37 days i mean we raised the money outside of the studio system so that we would have the wherewithal to go anywhere in the world that we felt the story took us, you know, we, we shot in Berlin, we shot in Delhi, we shot here in multiple states. And, you know, the goal is to be able to talk about this in a global framework in the same way that the book addresses these ideas in a global framework. Um, it, it addresses it both in a historical context and a contemporary context. This is a continuum, this idea of caste. The idea being that, you know, caste is a social hierarchy that determines power and status. You know, really simple. In every culture, on every continent around the world, someone's on the top and someone's on the bottom. And that is determined based on a random set of traits. It's not determined based on merit, based on experience, based on hard work. It's determined based on things that people don't have control over, right? Um, in India, the Dalit people, are born into a subjugated caste. They're just born into it, and there's no way out of it. That is their reality. That is their reality. And they're normal. And it's the norm. It is around issues of faith and caste and class and all kinds of things there, but it's something that the person can't control. They can be excellent at whatever they're doing and excel, but they're still dull and they're still the lowest of the low caste there. Uh, we have in India where the Dalits are supposed to be at the bottom and the Brahmins at the top. And between there are various units of caste. And what maintains this unit into continuing of caste system is the unending violence in the form of rape, mutilation, and murder. In India, a Dalit person is attacked every 15 minutes. In the United States, you can look at African-American people, and by the very virtue of our skin color, a random set of physical traits that we cannot determine upon birth, we are automatically relegated to, for centuries in this country, be enslaved, be segregated, be criminalized. Doesn't matter how excellent, doesn't matter how, there's nothing you can do to escape that visual mark upon being seen. And so that's what caste is. And when you apply the fact that this random set of traits can determine who's on the top and who's on the bottom, you start to get into really interesting ideas about who we are, our identity, and why all of these isms exist. Caste can be applied to sexism, racism, homophobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. It goes on and on. Um, you know, the LGBTQ community are locked in in the caste system. I think these ideas are provocative, and when I read them in the book, I thought, gosh, we should be talking about this and knowing about this. How would I approach this in a movie? This is a nonfiction book. There are no characters in this book beyond a page or two. And really, she, the writer, the author, um, she used the first person a lot in the, in the book. And not a lot, but some places here or there. And she started to kind of rise from the pages. And I thought, oh, she'll guide us through. 
I'll watch her write the book, and she will teach us what she's teaching us in the book, in the movie. And while I was connecting the dots about approaching her to do it, I, I learned that the three closest people to her in her life passed away in the 16 months period and thought, oh, that's, that is a movie character because that is a hero. That's a superhero. You have lost the three anchors in your life and somehow you continue on and you write this, this beautiful work. Um, and so, you know, she became, uh, uh, you know, a point of fascination and, you know, very blessedly allowed me to ask her many questions over the course of two years in the research and write that part of the screenplay that is not in the book. Um, that's why I don't call it cast, because the movie is not the book. The movie is about the life and work of Isabel Wilkerson, the work being cast and her life being this beautiful kind of treacherous journey through love and loss. Obviously, the cast is so impeccable. I can go 25 hours talking about John, talking about Ingenue and Nisi yeah. and, and Blair. And what I also want to talk about is the music. Mm, Chris because Bowers, Chris and Stan Bowers Walker. And Stan, you know, yeah. we need us everywhere. That's right. And when I watch the film and I watch the beginning scene uh, with Trayvon mm -hmm. and the music and the score is leading you into what we all know, mm -hmm. I I'm curious how you also, as a, I, I kind of have an idea how you picked ca uh, the cast, you know, yeah. and um, selected them and the freedom that you had to do that, which I want to dive yeah. into. But I would love to hear you kind of talk through the sound and the score. Yeah, thank you. Not many people ask me about that. Well, we were fortunate enough to, to mix up at Skywalker with, with, with good friends up there who gave us a deep discount. Thanks, Skywalker. <laughs> but, you know, I'd work with them on Wrinkle in Time where you have all the bells and whistles of Disney and they knew how closely I was holding the story and, and watched, watched it and said, we want to help. So they were, they were wonderful and being just great partners to, to me as a filmmaker. So that soundscape, so much of what you hear, and just the, the pleasure and wonder of being able to mix at Skywalker Ranch, this incredible place that George has created, like an actual liberated territory, his liberated territory, wow. where it is, you know, acres and acres of beautiful land and artists walking around focused on what they can hear, what they can see, really beautiful. In Germany, there's memorials to nearly everyone victimized by the Nazis. And there's no entry sign, no, no gate. It's just open both day and night. Just standing to bear witness. Twenty thousand books were lost that night. Books filled with imagination and ideas and history. And then Chris Bowers my composer, you know, I always say my composer because I feel like he's mine. <laughs> he, this is our fourth it's time. It's an intentional mind. It is. It's <laughs> the fourth time working together, and it's just such a delight when you collaborate with someone who's wildly talented but also has just such a, a spirit of, uh, he's, a, he's a peaceful spirit to him. He calms me. When Chris comes in the room, he is, uh, he's like a magnet for everything good. Good brother, good, good, beautiful musician, and 
so in tune with my images. Like he catapults my intention into another place with his music. He lifts up what I meant to do and takes it to another place. That's, that's what the collaboration is for me. And it's such a, a, a joyous collaboration. It's, we have fun and, and um, I know no instruments. And oftentimes I, I will mention the wrong instrument. Chris, I think that flute there, it's a little heavy. He's like, okay, flute. I can see him thinking, which instrument could she t be talking about? Because there's no flute in this song. <laughs> um, but he, he's uh, always kind to me. It's like, that's, that, that would be a trombone. Right, a trombone. Yes, that's what I meant. That's what I heard, a that's trombone. That's what I meant, a yes. trombone, literally. Um, but the music that, that he, that he uh, crafted for this, you know, he did so much research. He, he researched, you know, um, music that was actually written during the Holocaust in the camps, under duress, musicians still performing sheets of music that were written with no instruments that were found later in the camps. Rhythms and, 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 and notes and, and, and words that, that conveyed the suffering and the hope and the despair and the, the loss and the memories. And um, you know, he delved into Dalit music and actually talked with Dalit musicians and counseled with them and you know, got counsel from them and consulted with them about certain you know, percussions and certain um, uh, uh, instrumentation that would be that they, so that Dalit people could hear it within our film and recognize it, notice it, and feel seen and heard within the music. And, and then and certain, authentic too. Authentic to that, yes. The, the research, it is its own film essentially to create that world. Yeah, sonically, world, yes, sonically, yes. You're doing, and I can't help but Stan's. Uh, Stan Walker. That song. That song. How did you and Stan connect? We connected through 2023. <laughs> the ridiculous ways that people meet in 2023, which means online. Yep. <laughs> um, Paul Garns, my great producing partner, longtime producing partner here at Array, I told him, I need something else. We need something fresh, something different. I don't, we don't want to do the same thing, you know, the same find a star to sing the song yeah. and then you get the thing. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I want something anthemic like, like, like Selma, something that feels like an anthem, something that's cinematic and large and sweeping and all of that, but... And authentic And stuff. authentic to it, but can't we, we gotta find someone off the beaten path or someone who's, someone else. I was just ranting and raving yeah. about this something I was looking for. And literally two days later, he brought me a, 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 a video, a YouTube video of a Maori man with this incredible Maori band and background singers singing a cover of a Kanye West song, Ultra Light Beam. He was singing his heart out. The voice was like velvet. And the band, it was a video, they were gorgeous, Maori people. And they were rocking out and they were singing this song and this guy is singing it and he looks so cool. And I was like, who is that? And Paul said, I don't know. <laughs> I got it off the internet. I don't know who it is, but it says his name is Stan Walker. So I went on Instagram. You went in, did you slide in the DMs? I slid in the DMs of the one person we had in common. Okay. Because uh, I didn't follow him, he didn't follow me, yeah. so I couldn't get into the DMs. So I had yeah. to go through somebody that I knew. Yeah. So we had one <laughs> producer in common, a woman, a producer, Chelsea Wynn Stanley. And uh, I slid into her DMs and I said, I, this is ridiculous. This is like you texting me, asking me if I know a random black person in the United States yes, yes. because we are black. Yes. But I am asking you, because, <laughs> do you know this man, this Maori man, yes. Stan Walker? 
Yes, I know Stan. I said, do you follow him because you're a fan or do you know him? Yeah, can you get me in can touch with him? Can you get me in touch with him? 48 hours later, I'm on the phone with Stan. I, two weeks later, I have the song in my inbox. Wow. He watched it. He felt it so deeply. He connected it with his history. He connected what's going on in New Zealand and their society now with Maori people, which a lot of injustice and a lot of um, uh, just uh, uh, unfair policy. And he created this song that is, there could be no more perfect end to origin than the song I Am. And I'm just so grateful. It is an anthem for embracing your identity and being proud regardless of caste, I am, has nothing to do with what society says you are. Who are you in yourself? And, uh, and what a gift of a song it is. I want to dive into a little bit of the scenes from the film. Okay. Because I feel like there are a few that landed with different people for okay. different reasons for me. Uh -huh. um, what I thought was fascinating, and it was earlier on in the film, A, I love how some scenes don't need many words. Mm because they're just felt. Mm -hmm. uh, but I love the specific scene where Isabel Wilkerson's um, character um, is with her mom mm -hmm. and watching the news with her husband yes. about the murder of Trayvon Martin yes. and them diving into it. And you see the generational divide yeah. as you're starting to understand what caste is. Mm -hmm. The assumption is we're all here, we think the same, and this is horrible what happened. And she's not saying it's not horrible, but her mom is like, but had he just... Yeah, the mom he... is. Yeah, mom is taking it from. So you have this, uh, the mother, who's played by the incredible uh, Emily Yancey, um, and then you have the couple, John Bernthal and Anjanu Ellis Taylor, and they're talking about this this crime, this injustice that happened as they watched uh, President Obama on television giving the speech, his famous speech about Trayvon Martin, saying he could have been me, he could have been my son, and. They're talking about it, and the mother, who's from a different generation, she's in her 80s, says, I wish the boy would have just, um, uh, you know, it's basically respectability politics. I wish he would have just said where he was going and answered the man the way that he should have, right? And maybe he'd still be. And maybe he'd still be here. And um, Isabel and Brett, played by... Uh, uh, John Bernthal and Anjanou Ellis say he shouldn't have to answer to anyone. He was just walking down the street when he was assaulted and killed, just for walking down the street with a hoodie on. And the mother says, "You know what I'm saying. We, we, you, 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 he, he, he should have just answered and and made it home, compromised himself in the moment, been less than human and less, and 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 and, and, and less than." and not having to hold on to his dignity so much and just kowtow to this guy and got himself home. And so there's an argument, not an argument, but a disagreement about that. And by the end of the scene, you say, see that this is generational, but also the scene is interesting because you have this older black woman, a younger black woman, and a, and a white man, older and a younger white man. And so it's generational, it's class, it's race, it's caste. And it's all mixed up in this one scene that, that's, that's quite a tender scene between family members. And that's, I think, what we try to do in a number of scenes. It's, it's, it's how people from different sides of the spectrum are connecting on very mundane issues. You know, just a conversation about yep. a crime or yep. fixing a sink. There's another scene that, that people talk about a lot with Nick Offerman and Anjanou Ellis Taylor. Mm -hmm. Nick Offerman is a plumber who walks into the basement wearing a MAGA cap. Mm -hmm. This is a real story that Isabel Wilkerson experienced um, in her home 
when a man, a plumber, came in to service her home and he was wearing a MAGA hat. Mm -hmm. She needed him. Mm -hmm. Her husband had passed away. Mm -hmm. There was water in the basement. And she needed help. The person who showed up to help had on a symbol that basically says, I don't, I don't agree with you. I don't believe in you. I'm not checking for you. This is the way that that, 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 that was metabolized. He wasn't looking at her. He was just wasn't looking at her, wasn't focused on her, had dehumanized her in his mind and was treating her as less than uh, a service worker should treat their customer. And so through the scene, as the scene unfolds, you see how she deals with it, you see how he deals with it, and where it ends. And I think... And where they connect. Where they connect. Each scene in the film is constructed to challenge um, and to you know, ask you what you might do in that situation. Um, I know I would have had a different reaction in the plumber <laughs> scene than, than Ingenue Ellis Taylor as Isabel does. But it is an invitation, like you said, yeah. to discuss and to think about what you would do. What would you say to, to that older woman who says, just hold your tongue and, 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 and don't assert your, your humanity in a moment when someone disagrees with you? Don't, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what would you say if, if someone who, you know, you normally wouldn't invite into your home is the only one who can help you when you need help? You know, how, how do we wrestle with these issues? And, and that's, that's what we try to do in the scenes. And, and a lot of it is as people watch it, I invite them to think about what they would do if they were each character in the scene. Mm -hmm. The final act of the film is a collision of images uh, that you've made your way to through the film that really tie in the ways in which different cultures, continents, periods of time uh, across the spectrum of the human experience really have the same wound at the base. The same wound of caste is at the core of so much of the oppression and the challenges that people experience. And if we can look at that wound and work on that a little bit, there's some healing to be done. Um, but if you don't know the wound is there and you walk past it and you cover it up and you call it different things and you just, then you never really get to the root, the origin of our discontents, the origin of our problems. And so that, that's, that's what the, the, the film is trying to, to share in a way that I think, you know, you watch this woman kind of make her way through the world, uncovering the mysteries of our history. Um, and hopefully you feel a lot and you learn a little bit along the way. From a business perspective, I really respect and appreciate how you all have approached this film, which I think is a bit different than how you've done it before. I would love for you to just speak, you know, in your own world about raising the money, doing it outside of the system to be able to create something that doesn't have to fit, but is felt. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think, you know, raising the money on our own allowed us to make the film we wanted to make and be very free, to be experimental, to express ourselves in ways that, you know, don't really fit inside of a studio paradigm, which is okay. The studio paradigm is a, is a, is a, is a financial system, it is a business, it's its own economy. If folks give you millions of dollars, they're going to want to participate in the creative part of it and because they want to try to ensure a return. It's logical and I understand it. And I've participated in it and probably will again. For this film, I needed freedom. I needed to be able to cast who I wanted to cast. I needed to have Anjanou Ellis Taylor, who had never led a film, 
which is criminal, and How? she should have. That's a mind boggler. Uh, yes. Had never been the lead in the film. I wanted to be able to say, I see something in John Bernthal that is this tender, connected man, and it's way more than the Punisher. Yes. And I know that he can do this, and of course he can. I want Vera Farmiga. I want Nick Offerman. I want Blair Underwood. I want, you know, Jasmine Cephas Jones. Like, I want these people. I want to be able to bring in a non-actor to play himself because he's the best person to do it. I want to be able to go to India and be in the street and, and shoot, um, you know, uh, on the run, you know, and just see where the camera takes us. I want to be able to pull in people who, you know, might have been a background actor or might have been, you know, a, a scholar and, 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 and pull them in and put together this collision of images that don't necessarily fit in a box, you know. You use narrative, you can use doc, you can use, you know, there's images that are surreal, sitting along images that are historic, sitting along images that are contemporary. On paper, none of that should work. In the film, there is no antagonist. There's no villain chasing her around the world. The villain is us, all of us. You know, we are complicit in the ways that we treat one another. I don't write questions. I write answers. Questions like what? Like, why does a Latino man deputize himself to stalk a black boy to protect an all-white community? What is that? The racist bias I want you to explore, excavate for the readers. We call everything racism. What does it even mean anymore? It's the default. <coughs> Wouldn't that happen? Big <laughs> Hey, so wait, so you, you're saying that, that he isn't a racist? No, I'm not saying that he's not a racist. I'm questioning why is everything racist? Those things would not be allowed, for me anyway, maybe for someone else, but for me, there's no way I could do it. I couldn't shoot on film. I'd been asking many, many times, my, my colleagues and my, and my partners at various studios about shooting on film. Cost prohibitive, you know, the workflow is challenging. Let's just do digital, let's do it next time, and next time, and next time, and next time. By raising the money and being independent, I was able to green light myself and say, no, this time. And able to work with that delicious 16 millimeter that makes me just want to lick the screen when I look at the, at the frames. And so, you know, it was just a joy. When I say it's the, the, the most joyous piece of filmmaking, you know, it's, yeah, it's tough subject matter, approached with such a joy and such a hope that I feel this film is a, is a, is a, is a love story. A love story to humanity, a love story, certainly real love stories throughout many couples falling in and out of love and dealing with love. But really, it's a, it's a love letter, I hope, and in, in, in all of the things that I want to say and all of the things that I feel about this world. Um, this film is what I believe, and, uh, and it's an offering. There's impactful in the screen, on the film, in the theater, but I, I would love for you to close with just the seat 16 oh, yeah. and the impact that is being created to make sure that generationally individuals have access yeah. to experience this. Thank you for that. It's a little idea that we had. We just want young people to see the movie. Uh, <clears throat> I believe if you can, I remember when I was young, my aunt Denise, uh, we're in this theater, it's the Amanda Cinema. Her name was Denise Amanda Sexton. She's since passed on, but she gave me my love of movies and my love of, of all things to do with the arts. And she took me to an Amnesty International concert when I was young. And I remember I got a little book that, of my human rights. And I'm from Compton. I don't know anything about the world. I'm young, I'm maybe 14, 15. I remember holding a book that had my human rights in it, and I thought, wow, 
was just a radical concept to me that we all shared this, and this is something that we all should be able to enjoy and that people in different parts of the world and even in this country did not. And so I was, I was 14 or 15, and those early ideas really formed who I am. And so my sense of justice and dignity and identity. And so I want this film to maybe be that for someone. So that 14, 15, 16 uh, year old, I want to be able to come and see this film for free. I'm like into free movies. And, um, and so basically you can buy a ticket for a 16 year old, a 15 year old, 14 year old. It's called Seat 16 for $16. They get a free ticket to the film and they get a one year subscription to Masterclass. Masterclass is partnered with us. I mean, all those master classes that are on that on that thing, they can go, they can learn how to cook, they can learn how to direct, to write, to do whatever. And um, it's just about, uh, and this film, is, this film is based on a banned book. This book is banned in, uh, in many counties in this, in, this, in this nation. And the idea that the film um, can be, uh, uh, stand in, in, in the place of, of books that have been taken off the shelves. Um, so that young people can determine what they want to learn, when they want to learn it, and how, um, is one of the things we hope we can do. So seat 16, you go on, spend 16 bucks, buy a ticket for a kid, and, and put some learning in them. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much. Uh, yes. Have you got to do this here? It means a lot. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. After the break, Yvonne will be interviewing Divine Joy Randolph. Divine, it's so nice to have you here. Thank you. So the role of Mary Lamb came to you because director Alexander Payne had long had you in mind for this, but you know he had to deal with studios thinking he should get a bigger name at one mm. point. Talk to me about what your conversations were like with him and what he said, why this role was for you. The conversations as they started, first he had mentioned that he had seen a good a bit amount of my work in advance, which is rare, to be honest. Ooh. Or they'll know of like one. One. That's their personal one, right? For whatever reason. Um, but he had, in particular had highlighted Dolomite and said the characters and the nuances that I guess I was able to contribute in that role, he saw connective tissue mm. for this character, for Mary Lamb. Uh, so, which is an amazing honor. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to audition. I was grateful uh, and blessed at the opportunity to get a call. And that call, first, it was two calls. The first one was him basically describing the character, describing the tone, and deciding the kind of things that he wanted to bring out, themes, ideas. And then, it was like right before Thanksgiving, and then, at the end of the conversation, he gave me the script. And then after that, we were to reconvene if I enjoyed it, if I felt connected to it, um, which I didn't, of course. Well, not of course, um, but it was something really special about the script uh, and how she is complicated and real. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm always chasing authenticity, but that I have to do all the heavy lifting or a lot of the heavy lifting, most of the heavy lifting, uh, in order to make that come through in my characters. And it was very refreshing and rewarding to have an experience in which not only he, but also David, uh, the writer, mm -hmm. as well as the crew from top to bottom, uh, came in with that level of support and resources. Um, and so 
read it. I dug it. We talked about, you know, how does the time period affect it? You know, what are her things? Do we do we want a dialect? Do we not want a dialect? Uh, I extended that I thought it was important because she's not the help. She's hired. It's a job. And so all characters that I portray, whatever their job is, I always uh, support it to me that they're good at it. Even I actually think it's more interesting if I were to play like a loser. I, I Because I don't think a lot of people, unless it specifically is in the script, uh, now I'm working on different characters and producing my own stuff. I know that if that's not in the script, I always assume they're good at their job. Oh, interesting. Because if they weren't, they would they would say it. It would be a huge part in the in the storytelling. Mm. So I always make sure that my characters, also to be selfishly honest, as people of color, is important for me to see in the midst of people's struggle and tribulations, people good at things good. and dedicating themselves to. Um, I think a lot of times people leave a lot of blanks and spaces for characters of color. And I think people just leave things not to be written. And so a lot of times I'm filling in the blanks. I had you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? Oh, I don't know. I suppose I failed someone who richly deserved it. Oh, the Osgood kid? Yeah, he was a real asshole. Rich and dumb, popular combination around here. It's a plague. Uh, and you? You'll be here too? I'll buy my lonesome. My little sister Peggy and her husband invited me to go visit them at Roxbury, but I feel like it's too soon. Like Curtis will think that I'm abandoning him, you know? This is the last place that my baby and I were together. Not including the bus station. Well, I look forward to your fine cooking. Oh, no, no, don't do that. All we've got is whatever's in that walk-in. No new deliveries till January. How have you sort of navigated that throughout your career, filling in those blanks? I was very lucky to go to Yale School of Drama for graduate school. So there were certain tools that, and skills that I learned in my three years of being there. And one of the biggest ones in regards to this in particular is that there was a dramaturgical department. And oh, I wish, I was very spoiled because with each project or production, play, musical, whatever, there was a dramaturg assigned. And for people that don't know, it's basically in layman's terms, someone who is obsessed with the world of the play or the project, right? So for example, for holdovers, this person would have all historical references, all the cultural uh, and historical events that happened during this time period. If there are catchphrases, um, if there is certain products or a brand or something listed, they know everything about the world of this. I haven't been on a production yet. Where they've done it. But where you, they've done it. So I become it. my little own uh -huh. dramaturg wherever I go. And so that's how I fill in the blanks. And I'll just have conversations, you know, with the creatives of like, well, this is referenced here. And this is what this means. Is that what you mean to say? Are we gonna lean into this? Or historically during this time period, she would be doing this or she would be wearing this. Well, I wanna talk about, you know, how we are first introduced to Mary, which comes about like seven minutes into the film. And she's, you know, over a hot stove with her, you know, 
whisk in hands and there's a moment where she sort of looks out the window and you can feel and see the sadness and contemplation that she's experiencing. Mm. And you captured so much in literally like 20 seconds. Mm. And it just made me think like, in everything that I've seen you in, your first appearance on whatever screen it is, whether it's High Fidelity or My Name is Dolomite, you make such an impression with that first appearance of your character. Mm. And I'm wondering if you're cognizant of that, like how much that first appearance like means to you when you read it in a script in terms of what you're going to bring to it. As you were asking me the question, the first thing that came to my mind was, I remember in school, they said, listen, this is true of a monologue. This is definitely true of an audition. Uh, and this is something that I've always shared with my peers. And that was that the beginning and end is the thing that will stick with people for forever. And the middle is just sustaining in between. Mm. And with that being said, I really care about these people, these women who I portray. If, if, if understand if, if my name is on it, if they're making the announcement, oh, Dave Vine's doing the, I, it took me maybe two, three weeks to real, and usually my team being like, we need to, <laughs> respond if we're going to take this but I really think about it mm -hmm. because I know whatever I'm going to do I'm going to really invest in it mm -hmm. and it's going to cause uh, sacrifices it's going to require my time to be divided away from my personal life my family my loved ones um, because I don't know in, in, in my baby stage of my career I don't know how else to do it yet mm -hmm. But in regards to holdovers in that moment, that was one of her many like silent moments. And so uh, in those times, the script changes almost into like a novel or prose, it changes form um, in which almost like, and I mean this in the best way possible. I mean, I think romance novels are amazing, but I don't know in the literary world if people like look down on it or not. Right, right, right. But how in romance novels, the details are so precise. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like erotic literature. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. The detail, the sensor is so, and the you color, feel it. You feel it. And that's how this man wrote. And I didn't have any word. And I remember reading it being like, why is it, why does it change like that? Because they didn't tell me, like, uh -huh. oh, hey, listen, I thought maybe you're going to just, I don't know. It was like, cause sometimes this stuff will be in a script and no one ever, the viewer will never see it. We know this and we're like, oh, that was interesting. But when they then, I think it was the first time we did do one of these silent scenes, I was like, oh, cause I didn't prepare for it. I thought that it was just for me to know and them to figure it out. Um, and so in that moment, I think it's just, I'm beginning to learn the power of being and just showing up and it just being that. And so a gift that this uh, movie has taught me is that I can also have power and stillness. I think I've played, I've played strong characters, but I've played characters that are very, can tend to be very uh, bombastic and full and, you know, and 
that was something that drew me to this character that I was like, oh, this is a whole nother thing. She's more quiet and contemplative in general. Let's take Mary home, make sure she's okay, and we'll come back. Out of the question. Come on, would you give me a break? God, I was hitting it off with Elise. No, oh, Denise, are you kidding me? This poor woman is bereft, and all you can think about is some silly girl. I don't need you feeling sorry for me. See? I'm just saying, this was the first good thing that came with being in this prison with you. A part of me kind of believes that she, she's, she too, like Mr. Hunnam, wants to be here. Her sister's only 45 minutes away. If she wanted to go home, she could have went home. And I always imagined that it was almost as if she was in bargaining negotiations with God of like, I will only go unless you show me a sign that I need to go. And when that boy says he wants to go, that's why I think they're just so beautiful together. Oh. All of them. There's that moment where you know, she's attending a colleague's holiday party. Um, and, you know, she, it, it sort of shows the different ways this can sort of just overtake you, right? The emotions. Yeah. She arrives somewhat fine emotionally. Yeah. And as the night goes on, you see how it sort of overcomes her. And there's that moment in the kitchen where she's inconsolable and she's, you know, grieving. She's there for the kid to have some kind of familial sense of home, a memory for him. Mm -hmm. Seeing that young man happy brings her joy and and soothes some, some wounds mm -hmm. for her. I think it is no coincidence that she gets to spend Christmas with this young man. And with Mr. Hanum, this is quite possibly the first time she's ever really had a real communication with another faculty member, mm -hmm. let alone them talking about life and interests, dislikes, which is so beautiful because in many ways they're playing their own version of right. the newlywed gay mm -hmm. throughout the entire movie. Mm -hmm. Whether it was romantic or not, who knows, they're invested in one another and they care. And she's concerned about him mm -hmm. and that he's not living life. And that in many ways, he's like this agoraphobic person locked away in the ivory tower, you know? And so I think our focus is I'm gonna, I'm here for them. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna help them. And probably due to nerves, fatigue, you don't sleep that much when you're grieving. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts are keeping you up at night. She thinks alcohol is gonna give her the liquid courage. And the alchemy of alcohol can do one or two things. <laughs> and it does the other. Uh-huh. And so I think it's why it goes on this. She never intended for that to happen. That lady never would have even walked through that door. She always keeps it together. If she thought that was gonna happen. And I think the alcohol, she genuinely believed that the alcohol would give her the courage and that she would have like a good high, you know, and just be buzzy. And I think I used to think of it as like, if anything, her fantasy of it, that she would be dancing and having a good time and, you know, having jokes, cracking jokes and being the life of the party. 
which is where I feel like there's a clue when she says, I'm in charge of the music. Mm. I don't want to listen to this whack music. <laughs> I'm a DJ. I'm going to pay my tunes. I got this stuff going. Right. You know? And... But she plays herself. You know what it's like? It's almost like, you know, like, if you're going through a breakup, like, why are you on social media looking? You know, it's like we do it to ourselves. We do it to ourselves. Why are you listening to y'all song? <laughs> why would you do that? Of course. But it's that. And that's also something that's so complicated by grief, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's like, okay, I'm just going to rip the Band-Aid off and like, ah, and then there's other times where we just want to be so, I can't even think about it. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I think she's just trying everything possible. Well, yeah, I mean, Alexander talks about this is really a love story of these three very different people coming together and finding ways to love each other. And obviously we know Paul Giamatti is this veteran who delivers stellar performances with everything he does. Mm -hmm. But Dominic is, you know, this newcomer who hasn't Stratus. done this before. How was that sort of, you know, finding your way through this film together? Easy. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, mm -hmm. but it was easy. I knew Paul was going to bring it and then some. He really exceeded, even from, I've watched everything that he's done, but even in that he's exceeded what I ever thought. And one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. So caring and loving and kind. So that, especially as being the lead, sets the tone. I felt comfortable as an actor. Uh, and I felt supported as an actor by him. Um, and then Dominic just, they cast him for a reason. You know what I mean? I, I, but listen, I think anybody can act. It really just- You haven't met me, Davine. No, it I depends. Act. It really comes down to vulnerability. <laughs> if you're willing to expose- I'm not. And that's why acting's hard. Because mm -hmm. it's uh, crazy. Mm -hmm. It's abnormal. It's a little weird for a person to get a high <laughs> off of being somebody else other than themselves. That's why actors can be weird. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Uh -huh. So kudos to you for being healthy. <laughs> Thank your therapist. You, you are healthy and well. We are not. We are not. But no, I, who he is as a young man, Dominic, he's an old soul. He's, he's lived this life. It is art imitating life for he him. He looks like he's straight out of 1970s. And that is his real haircut. They didn't do his hair for the, if you look at, he's here now in town. That's how he's rocking his hair right now. And so, but that's beautiful. Then that means like, of course, then you're doing the part. You're meant to do this part. With each project that you do, the recognition of your talent continues to grow. And with this performance, you're getting so much praise and awards buzz. You're picking up top critics prizes. I'm curious, like, what does that do for you in terms of how you view yourself as a performer? It is an affirmation to keep going. It's the little voice inside that's like, keep going. It matters. It does. I want a movie starring Divine. I want you to lead it. I want a rom-com starring Divine. Are those things that you want? I, I want to give voice to the voiceless, you know? As a minority, and as a female, because it, with Dolomite, it really tripped me out that I, I, there was, I couldn't 
search that woman. And that's a real person that made a big impact on someone's life. Uh, and there was not tons, but a good amount on Rudy Ray Moore. And I literally had to dive and find a party album to just hear the woman speak. And that I had to base my entire performance on. And that shook me where I was like, this is crazy that from female narratives, we don't have it. And so I just want to tell these stories. And so I try to position myself, maintain my craft, maintain my skill set so that I can be afforded these opportunities to be in these kind of spaces, the Alexander Paynes of the industry. It's one thing to do, you know what I mean? Like with your people and that that's cool. But I think you can also make a quite bigger splash potentially to be in spaces where the, you aren't there and to do said job and to do it well. Cause it's twofold for me. It's me wanting to make a difference within the industry at large, but my devotion is always to the viewer. Mm -hmm. And with every character and decisions and choices that I make, I'm always thinking, who, who is it that will be watching this? And what can I do? It's almost like I'm into sports and I remember growing up Jason Kidd, mm -hmm. when he used to go to the free throw line, he would do this little thing. And when I watched an interview and they said that that was him saying hi to his kids, I thought that was so cool. And I remember as a kid being like, I wanna, I don't care what I be when I grow up. I, I want my little, and that's what I do. I think of the viewer. I think what is it that could be relatable or allow them to feel seen mm -hmm. or I'll intentionally do it like with high fidelity. It was all about pop culture and the here and now. I, you know, I'm asking friends, my younger cousins, my younger yeah, sister, yeah, yeah. what's the dance move right now? What are they doing? You know what I mean? I had to have her be relatable to a certain demographic with this. I'm pulling back, you know what I mean, to my ancestors, the people who are in my personal life, the women who have been trailblazers in my industry that has afforded me to be in this position, I pay homage to them. You know what I mean? I'm I'm paying homage in in the hairstyles that I choose, in the clothes that I'm wearing, and you know, the 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 little accessories or the coat that I, you know what I mean? All these little details are my subliminal yeah. message. Because mm -hmm. um, it's a love letter. Thinking back to your time at Yale, mm. and maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but I would imagine mm. that this is how I would feel, maybe that I don't always belong. And as you're navigating your way through that, of discovering who you want to be as a performer, when you think back to that time, have you become the actor that you sought out to be? You're a very good interviewer. I just want you to know that. Thank you. You're a very good interviewer. 
when I applied for graduate school, I, because of how I looked, I, now you have to keep in mind, I'm a classically trained opera singer. When I, when I got in, when I began to refocus my energy to this new art form, I knew nothing of it. But one thing I did know is that I never wanted to be a stereotype and I did not want to be limited by how I looked mm -hmm. to whomever was looking at me at that moment. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting callbacks to these different schools and you know, when it came down to the interview, you know, and they asked, what do you want to get out of the school? I said, I said, I want to be able to learn through you um, and gain a skill set, like a toolbox of skills and resources so that essentially I could play Juliet and Romeo and Juliet and be in the body and the skin that I am in and you believe it and that in some way I can disappear and that character can show up instead. And every school but one said no, or that's impossible, or that's not what we're interested in. And Yale School of Drama was the only one that was like, but of course, that is what our entire curriculum is based upon. Yeah. So I knew that was the place for me. If I was gonna do this acting thing, this would be where I need to do it. And as I was getting my training, I was the only black female in my class. There were two African-American men and one woman from um, Puerto Rico. Uh, and it allowed me to have this incubated space in which what was so beautiful, I never felt like a child almost is colorblind, yeah. like truly. Because I didn't have any outside influences and then we were like in a lab, so to speak, they really allowed me just to create as many characters as possible. But as we were getting ready to get close to graduating, I was in search of my identity. Mm -hmm. And I remember I used to go to my teacher, um, his name is Ron Van Lue, he's very well known, probably one of the last few living acting gurus, but I'm talking about yeah. Way back when. Yeah, yeah. And he said, you know what, Devon, what, who is it that you look up to? And I rattled off names to him and he just laughed in a kind way. And I said, well, what's so funny? You know, and he was like, because whom you look up to looks nothing like you. Therefore, you have to understand an essential truth and that is you are forging your own path. Absolutely. And that the likes of Meryl Streep, as an example, Al Pacino, De Niro, there wasn't a them before they arrived. Mm -hmm. And so he said to me, I have no question that you will become exactly what you need to do. However, you're gonna have a hard road. Right. Because you're not gonna have a blueprint set before you, but you have to invest and believe in yourself. And in believing yourself, you can never go wrong. I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm evolving into, I never, to answer your question simply, I never had this stone cut thing. There was just, 
the essence of people and their careers and their paths from the public eye that I thought I wanted. And what's crazy is, as I'm getting to know these people personally now, mm -hmm. I'm getting more insight. Some things that I thought were true was true. Some things I thought was true was not true at all in the best way possible. And so it's just, it's bizarre to list those people and then be like, well, yeah, last week I got advice from Al Pacino <laughs> for my personal life. You know what I mean? But it's like, and it's something even that he said of this sense of there is a community at a certain point of your ascension because they get it. There's nothing yeah. new under the sun. Right. But the best and only thing you can truly offer is your authentic self. Mm -hmm. Because nobody can copy. As much as that's like, yeah, that's what they taught us in kindergarten. But it's actually true. I actually think that a lot of stuff that we tell children in the first years of their life we, there needs to be like a little book to be like, hey, remember these things? Get back to that. Because it's true. It is true. There are essential, fundamental, full, whole life truths. Mm -hmm. And there's truly nothing better than, than being yourself. We got to love on ourselves more. Yeah. We have to explore more, travel more. In between gigs, I like to go away mm -hmm. if I can afford to do so. Um, because we, how am I gonna be a good actor and I haven't left my house? We have to have experiences and we need to get out of America to explore yeah. other places mm -hmm. to get insight of how other people function mm -hmm. and live. I just wanna congratulate you on your Thank success. You. I can't wait to see what role you tackle next Thank and you. continue making that blueprint. I really appreciate it. And that'll do it for another episode of The Envelope. Thank you for watching and listening. Please subscribe wherever you may watch or listen. And we'll be back with a new episode on February 15th. That'll be coming after the Oscar nomination. So we'll have a whole new round of guests. Please watch and listen along then.